Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, manned space flights have added much to the history of Florida over the past half century, and a new effort is trying to save the future of space exploration. It's scary to think what might happen if uh, uh, the new president's vision isn't... uh, as bold as uh, John F. Kennedy was about space. We'll look at the history of the Roosevelt Bridge in Stewart and visit the excavation of a black Seminole village. My interest was in Maroons, which is another word for runaway slave, Africans who escaped from slavery to set up independent communities in swamps and mountains, in frontiers, hard to reach places where they couldn't be easily tracked. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission, to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. The 1960s television series Star Trek, along with its numerous TV spin-off shows and a major film franchise, portray a hopeful future for space exploration. The Star Trek series was so inspirational to many real-life space workers that when construction of the first space shuttle began in 1974, the vehicle was named Enterprise after the fictional starship from Star Trek. When the Space Shuttle Enterprise was dedicated on September 17, 1976, Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry and most of the original Star Trek cast were there. Now, more than 33 years later, the Space Shuttle program is drawing to a close. It's scary to think what might happen if uh, um, the new president's vision isn't uh, as bold as uh, John F. Kennedy was about space. Robin Fisher is the Brevard County Commissioner for District 1. At a recent Florida Space and Technology Forum, Fisher announced a plan called Save Space. It's an effort to have at least 500,000 people write letters to President Barack Obama over the next week or two, encouraging him to increase NASA's budget and extend the shuttle program. Fisher says Florida has a real pride of ownership of the space program. No doubt about it. I mean, it's uh, you talk to some of the old timers and you listen to them and not long ago, you know, they had the, de- the Apollo anniversary and they had the dedication of the um, the monument down here, you know, in Space View Park. And and uh, got a chance to talk to a couple of the astronauts and it was the, the pride that was beaming and the workers that worked out there and, you know, did something that no one's ever been able to do. I mean, I can see why they're very proud of it. And uh, uh, they were to start on something that's, you know, we've built on over the years. Commissioner Fisher explains that the economic impact on Brevard County would be significant if the space program were to take a break between major projects after the end of the shuttle program, as is currently the plan. You get mixed numbers, but, you, you know, you got to believe that uh, um, they're somewhere close. There's, you know, 7,000 jobs 
uh, if you lose 7,000 jobs and then you think about what kind of spinoff and direct jobs you create because of those 7,000 jobs, that the economic impact would be probably over 20,000 jobs throughout the county. And, and um, that's huge. And so uh, for my district, which is, you know, 528 North, a lot of those jobs are in that my district. And so uh, I'm very, very, very concerned about um, my entire district. But, you know, I think North Bivard and Port St. John would probably fill it more than anybody. Pat Duggins has covered the space program for more than 20 years, and he's author of the book Final Countdown, NASA and the End of the Space Shuttle Program. Duggan says that if the shuttle program does end soon, it would not be the first time in history that there was a lag between NASA programs. He says there was a delay between the end of the Apollo program and the start of the shuttle program. Well, they were kind of painted into a, a, a corner by Congress because as soon as Neil Armstrong's little toe hit the moon, like 50,000 Kennedy Space Center engineers and technicians lost their jobs immediately because when we put on the, the man-moon mission, the whole point was we're going to beat those Russians. So as soon as we get there, it's like, well, mission's over. What do we do now? So that, that's when NASA's budget started going away. So uh, seeing it kind of ebb like that, it, it became very clear that it was the mission that really was what stoked the fires at NASA and what got him going. And with the shuttle, the way, I, the way I phrase it in the book is Apollo worked because it was a mission that went looking for its spacecraft, and the shuttle didn't work because it was a spacecraft that went looking for a mission. So the shuttle was created to be sort of a space truck initially to go and service a space station in orbit, but Congress wouldn't pay for the space station. In fact, they wouldn't even pay for a fully reusable orbiter, which is what NASA wanted for the initial shuttle program. So you had this space plane, basically, as the name implies, shuttling back and forth to orbit with really nothing to do. So that's when all of the, the understandable criticism started up of NASA. It's kind of like, well, what are you doing? I mean, we basically gave up the moon when we stopped Apollo, and now we're stuck in low Earth orbit. And only now, 30 years later, is NASA getting ready to take that leap off the high dive and maybe go back to the moon and Mars, assuming Congress and the White House want to pay for it. If the shuttle program is not extended, NASA could lose a lot of valuable personnel just as they are trying to get a new program underway. Pat Duggins. When Apollo ended, there was a tremendous bright flight. In other words, the people that, that made Apollo work, one minute could be turning screws and bolts on Saturn V rockets and literally could be working at gas stations the next. So a lot of them went off to other projects. So when the space program started up, remember there was that like five-year gap between 1975, that's when the Apollo-Soyuz joint mission with the Russians flew, and that was the last Apollo flight, and the very first flight of the shuttle. So you have this this chasm of time when most of the engineers here between 75 and 81 were off doing something else. So when NASA started up the shuttle program, they had to re-recruit just about everybody to come over and, and make the shuttles fly. So And, and even when the, uh, the Challenger accident occurred and they had the, uh, the, the report afterwards, they said one of the things they brought out in that report was like, folks, the people who were here for Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo are gone. I mean, the folks that picked up were these young bucks who really had to relearn about everything going on in the space program when the shuttle program started up. And the, the Challenger Commission felt that was really a, that was a detriment to NASA. While Duggins argues that it is time to move on from the shuttle program as soon as possible, he says a solid mission for the future of space exploration must be established. We've got a new Apollo-style capsule called Orion. Everybody's pretty well agreed that, that that's the way to go in terms of the design of the vehicle, but what kind of rocket will boost it into space is all over the map. You've got people who say, let's take a supersized version of the space shuttle booster, that's called Ares, and use that. There are critics out there that say that there's just a whole bag of horrors regarding the design of that vehicle. They recommend taking other 
shuttle leftovers and putting it together into something called Jupiter. There are folks out there who would be equally happy if they used uh, liquid-fueled rockets like the uh, the Atlas V and the Delta IV. Most obviously the contractors who build the Atlas V and the Delta IV, but that's another story. And so you've got this presidential commission that's trying to piece all of this mishmash together and figure out what kind of technology would be best to use, what kind of rocket to use. Should we go back to the moon? Should we go straight to Mars? Should we go on to explore uh, asteroids? There are members of the astronaut corps that think that's what NASA ought to do next. So really, it's, it's, it's almost a grab bag in terms of what may actually happen. Probably the worst thing I think NASA could probably do would be to go back to the moon and stop. Because then everybody who hates NASA is going to come back and say, well, great, the American space program just achieved what our grandparents did using slide rules back in the 1960s, and that's all. So... Whatever, whatever they do, I'll report on it, but that, that's probably what's going to happen if they just go back to the moon. Armstrong is on the moon. Neil Armstrong, 38-year-old American, standing on the surface of the moon. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Charlie Mars is president of the U.S. Spacewalk of Fame Foundation and worked on the Apollo program from the early design phase through the last mission. He says that long before the shuttle program, the Apollo missions had a huge impact on the economy of Brevard County and the state of Florida. Oh, no telling how many millions of dollars were poured into the economy from workers and hotels and restaurants and gift shops and rental cars, airline tickets. So, you know, a tourist attraction. That's what it was for every shot. Although Charlie Mars is very active in preserving NASA's past through monuments in Titusville Space View Park and the exhibits in the Spacewalk of Fame Museum, he is not optimistic about the future of the space program. I think they will never reach the pinnacle that we reached on Apollo. Uh, it's gotten more political, it's gotten more involved as far as numbers of folks required to make decisions. Uh, more procedures required, and what's caused that mainly has been the accidents that we've had. Starting with Apollo 1, obviously things got a little tighter, they got more people involved. Then we had Challenger in Columbia, which has really added to the numbers of people required on almost any decision-making process. Others, like Brevard County Commissioner Robin Fisher, are very hopeful about the future of space exploration. Fisher and his fellow commissioners are encouraging everyone interested in space to take a few moments to write a letter and mail it to President Obama. The effort is called Save Space. Save Space uh, um, letter writing campaign is a grassroots campaign and uh, President Obama was a king of grassroots. I, I think that uh, one of the reasons you can say he probably got elected it was because of his grassroots efforts, you know, and he reached out to a lot of people all over the place. And what I notice in this whole um, um, effort dealing with the space, the retirement of the space shuttle program, that most of the leadership was concentrating on, they accepted the fact that the shuttle was going away, and they were concentrating on getting ourselves in position for the next vehicle and trying to make sure that whatever the next vehicle is and what that looked like, that that our workforce is going to be taken into consideration. You know, and meanwhile, they were working hard to try to bring new industry in. And I think that is a great long-term plan. Um, Short-term, though, I don't believe that our current employee base will have two or three years to sit around and try to figure out how they're going to feed their family. Um and so the Augustine Commission, when they were summoned to come back with some options, you know, one of the options was was extend the shuttle program. 
So in my mind, I started thinking 7,000 jobs, you stay in the shuttle program, maybe those jobs don't go this year, maybe they go two years from now, maybe they go three years from now. That gives you a chance in the community to diverse a little bit more. And meanwhile, though, um, you can you can save some jobs and keep that talented workforce here in Brevard. So I just kind of went out on a limb a little bit and said, hey, it's not it's to me, it's not about the long term thing is I'm worried about short term and I'm worried about the next two or three years. So let's see if we can do something to do that. Augustine Commission, one of their recommendations was extend the shuttle program. President Obama, when he was here in August of 2008, he made some comments that he would he would do that. And so um, but nobody in the community was up in arms and saying anything about it. They just kind of allowing their local legislators and state and, and federal uh, legislators to, to kind of go make the pitch for them. And being in politics, I understand grassroots campaigns, and I understand that if you get enough people concerned about an issue, somebody will take notice. And so our effort is to get enough people concerned about this issue that they take notice. And I think that uh, uh, the president uh, will take notice if he's got a half million letters coming to him from Brevard uh, County and uh, the state of Florida and hopefully nationally. Fisher wants letter writers to ask President Obama to add an additional $3 billion a year to NASA's budget, extend shuttle flights, and extend the life of the International Space Station. Fisher says the effect of the space program goes far beyond Brevard County. One of the things we realized early, and I think, the, uh, and maybe um, some people haven't, but we have, is that this thing is bigger than Brevard. I mean, you know, NASA budget is $4 billion for the state of Florida, and only $1.5 of us here, and the other 25 is all over the, the state. So we realize that NASA budget is is huge, but this is a state issue, and it's, and it's, it's really a national issue. And so uh, we're trying to make sure that we don't just localize this to Brevard County, that we actually get um, President Obama thinking that, Everybody cares about space, you know, around the U.S., and this is important from a national standpoint, not just Brevard. The Save Space campaign is already making progress toward the goal of 500,000 letters sent to the president by the beginning of November. Uh, one of my favorite places to eat lunch down here is Bagel World, you know, on Garden Street. And uh, Bagel World has been asking their customers when they come in to um, uh, sign a letter. And then they've brought those letters down to our commission office, and, and they've gotten over 400 letters signed in that little shop. So we're going to help them get that off to the president, and uh, we're just going to see, you know, what we have when it's all said and done. If you want to help make history by preserving the future of the space program, you can find more on their website at savespace.us. To boldly go where no man has gone before. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to discover books about Florida history, look at historic photographs, learn about upcoming special events, and much more.
The Roosevelt Bridge in Stewart, Florida has a long and interesting history. Janie Gould takes us under the bridge to find out more. I'm Janie Gould in search of hidden history, and today I'm standing under the Roosevelt Bridge in Stewart. There's a historic marker here that talks about the dedication of the first Roosevelt Bridge. Sam Amerson is Public Works Director for Stewart, and he's here with me. He knows exactly how the historic marker got here. I began work in 1995 as the city's public works director and at that time the DOT was constructing the new Roosevelt Bridge and in the process had to destroy or remove part of the original bridge. One of the three original bridges actually. A couple of years after that they were finishing the bridge. I got a call from DOT in Fort Pierce and said that they were cleaning up their yard and found a bronze marker. Thought it might have belonged to the original bridge. So I drove up and looked at it. On the whole, there was a marker that was dedicated for the bridge in 1934 by Governor David Schultz. I wonder where this marker was for all these years. Obviously, it wasn't on the first Roosevelt Bridge, apparently. It was in a storage shed in Fort Pierce. That's correct. And actually, I think this was the third bridge across the river. I'm not sure if it was the first named Roosevelt Bridge. I think the first bridge, if my research is correct, was called the Henry Flagler Bridge, built in about 1918. You're absolutely right. So you decided to bring this marker back and put it up here? We did. We weren't sure exactly what to do with it, but we thought it was worth preserving. Like I said, it was dedicated in 1934, weighs about 50 pounds, and we didn't really have a location to put it where the public could view it, so we thought we'd build a pedestal under the new Roosevelt Bridge, adjacent to the former Roosevelt Bridge, the drawbridge, so at least the uh, pedestrians and those walking downtown would have a chance to view it. The first Roosevelt Bridge was named, obviously, for FDR. It was a depression work project. Is that what your understanding That's is? That's my understanding. During the Depression, it was to get folks back to work. And it was actually a stimulus package. That's uh, what it was, a stimulus program to get people back to work. And it was primarily to do with roads and bridges. Do people stop and look at this often? when they're walking by, or do they stop and get out of their cars and look at this? Actually, they do. I've observed people stopping, reading the uh, monument, and also taking some photographs. David Schultz was the governor, and C.B. Treadway was chairman of the State Road Department, and then there's some other names, too, of members. State Highway Engineer J.H. Dowling, and some others. I'm sure the first Roosevelt Bridge was a vast improvement to the earlier bridge. Oh, I'm sure it was. It was probably a very, very, very small, narrow, two-lane bridge at the time, and it was wooden. 
and there's no doubt that the newer Roosevelt Bridge, which has been here for about 12 years, I think. That's correct. There's no doubt that it has improved Stewart dramatically. It has. It uh, carries a lot of traffic. It's a, actually a very attractive bridge, architecturally speaking, aesthetically. And beautiful scenery. Yes, and we don't have to stop cars to let the boats through. People don't have that excuse for being late to work anymore, that the bridge is up. That's a true story. No more excuses. Do you know how many cars use the Roosevelt Bridge every day? Traffic it's, counts? That's tremendous. It's in the tens of thousands. I think it's about 30,000 per day. And there's a little piece of history right underneath it, a marker of the first Roosevelt Bridge. I've been talking with Sam Amerson, Public Works Director for the City of Stewart. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. Sail on, silver girl. Sail on by. Your time has come to shine. All your dreams are on their way. See how This is Florida Frontiers. In 1835, the Bloody Dade Massacre marked the beginning of hostilities in the Second Seminole Indian War, a conflict that ended with the decimation of Florida's Native American population. Bill Dudley takes us to an excavation just 10 miles from the battle site that got underway eight years ago. The dig provides us with information about a group who lived among the Seminoles. A summer afternoon shower has begun to fall as University of Florida archaeologist Terrence Wyke and a group of students turn over a few last shovelfuls of dirt before wrapping up today's digging. Sifting some of the dirt through a screen, they find remnants of human habitation. Another piece of bottle glass, this light screen, you can see the, uh, there's bubbles and things in it and sometimes a little bluish or rainbow-colored tint to it, and that way we know it's older stuff, you know, the newer glass. On this remote site on rolling pasture land in Sumter County, Wyke is directing the first-ever excavation of a black Seminole town, home to as many as a hundred slaves who fled plantations in Georgia and South Carolina to befriend and live with the Indians here in Florida. My interest was in maroons, which is another word for runaway slave. Africans who escaped from slavery to set up independent communities in swamps and mountains, in frontiers, hard to reach places where they couldn't be easily tracked, very distant from colonial towns, forts, and plantations. So, you know, they didn't have the limits that were placed on by plantations. For instance, laws outlawed drumming or, you know, the expression of their spiritual beliefs or religion and things like that. They could do something like that at a place like this. They called their village Paliklikaha, 
Later map makers would call it Abraham's Old Town after the black soldier and translator often employed by the powerful chief Micanopy, who lived nearby. Established around 1806, the settlement was burned to the ground in 1836 during the Second Seminole War. There's good water sources. You can look down to the north and you see how it drops off, you know, so this is a pretty prominent rise, so it's a good place to settle. You see all those cows out there, well, cattle ranching has been going on for centuries since the Spanish, and according to military accounts, the black Seminoles had huge herds of cattle. Located through careful comparison of old maps, aerial photos, and local folk history, Palik Lekaha has already provided a wealth of artifacts yet to be fully analyzed. They're finding iron nails, both commercial and locally produced pottery, and other items dating to before 1830. There's so little written in the documents about these folks. We get glimpses here and there of stuff. How many people were there, what kind of crops they were growing, where they came from, you know, in a general sense. But, you know, we don't know the details of their everyday life. These pieces of pottery or the wrought iron nails or the pipe stems or bees, you know, these little things just give us something that shows us, okay, these, this is evidence of what they did with their leisure time, the jewelry they were wearing, the pots that they were making. This is what they were you know, doing on the everyday level. Terence Wyke is hoping these discoveries will answer important questions about the relationship between these people and the Seminoles who live nearby. Were they slaves of the Indians, as some have suggested, or partners? We don't really know their relationship to the Seminoles. University of South Florida archaeologist Brent Weissman. They were considered by the U.S. government to be the property of someone. You know, they were escaped slaves for the most part. And they were considered to be missing or lost property. As we understand it, the black Seminoles were allowed to live in their own independent villages. The blacks were not incorporated into the Seminole clans. You know, they were kept distinct. But evidence now suggests the blacks had a symbiotic relationship with their neighbors. They were on plantations and towns, then they escaped to the frontier. They were valuable to the Seminoles because the Seminoles weren't as well-versed, or a lot of them either refused to or didn't want to speak the language of the Europeans. So they had the blacks or the Africans who could do that, who knew something more of whites because of their interactions with them. The Seminole Indians provided a buffer between the slave catchers and themselves. The Seminole Indians also provided a means through which the black Seminoles could have contact and commerce and interaction with the outside world. They themselves could not directly relate to anybody on the outside because they were always potentially at risk. Terry's finding broken plates and dishes and things like that, the ceramics. You know, how were they getting those ceramics? They were getting them through by interacting with the Seminoles, who were getting those things from the traders. Because this village was perhaps the largest and most important black Seminole town, archaeologists think what's found here will provide some exciting new insights to clear up questions surrounding an important part of Florida's history. It's nice to do something which will help fill in some gaps in the sort of our national historical consciousness of the past and race relations. You know, our problems and our tensions today are clearly related to history. You know, it's, you have to know your history, your personal history, your family history, the country's history. So it's, it's really great to add to people, a dimension to people's lives, show that there's a historical legacy here, a heritage, you know, that's 
available if we look for it. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.